Today's reading comes from 1 Kings 9, 1 through 9. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and achieved all he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and the plea you've made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you do, and your sons turn away from me, and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that, um, oh, about 40 days or so after a president is reelected, the press start asking the question, what's his legacy going to be? You ever notice that? If you've lived long enough, you know that's true. Um, and some presidents, presidents seem uh, a bit overwhelmed by the question themselves. Um, they're constantly trying to build their legacy. Others seem to be the type that just do the work they feel like they're supposed to do and ask what their legacy is going to be in the end. But no matter, it's, it's the point of legacy. We hear it all the time. But there's another kind of legacy to be left that is not associated with kings or presidents. Uh, Solomon left the legacy as a king, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment. Presidents always leave legacies, sometimes not the one they want. But other people leave legacies as well. Uh, about three years ago now, just a little more than three years ago, um, my father passed away from a massive sudden heart attack. Uh, I had the privilege, as many of you know, of preaching his funeral service. That wasn't the easiest thing I've ever done, but by the grace of God, I got through it, and it was fine. But I began that sermon uh, at Dad's funeral by quoting the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers or mockers. But his delight is in the law of God, and in his law he meditates both day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bring forth their fruit in their season, and their leaf will not wither. And whatever he does will prosper. The rest of that psalm, Psalm 1, the very first one, talks about the opposite. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. I stopped before I got 
to the ungodly because that wasn't a description of my dad. The first part was. He was a man of incredible faith and tremendous integrity, and I am so ever grateful for the heritage that is mine that was delivered to me by my father. It was a tremendous legacy. I was uh, actually preparing for that sermon um, in his office the day before the funeral. And I glanced on the desk where he sat just days earlier and finished his last sermon. And there was a coffee mug there. And on the coffee mug, there was these words, which was a sum summary of a proverb. It went, the righteous man walks in integrity and his children follow after him. That was my dad's legacy. I, I quoted that at his, at his uh, funeral in my sermon, and I'm profoundly grateful for what he gave us. Now, I say that to compare legacies. No. I say that to tell you that we all have a legacy. And in the case of Solomon, he had an incredible legacy. As a matter of fact, to take a brief overview of his legacy is just to look at four things that were, well, large about Solomon's reign. The first one was this. It was wisdom. Remember uh, several weeks ago we talked about how Solomon had a vision from God and God said to him, what do you want? I'll give you this and this and this and this. And he said, I only want one thing. I want wisdom. And God said, you've asked wisely. I'll give you wisdom and all these other things. And God did. Solomon's noted for wisdom. Uh, it's chief among the characteristics of his kingship. As a matter of fact, early on in the book, you see a description of the wisdom that the people of Israel saw in Solomon. On one occasion, two women came to him, and they had a story. Both of the women were prostitutes and had given birth to children. And one woman, uh, while she slept, rolled over onto her baby and crushed her baby and killed her baby in the night. That woman woke up and realized she had crushed her baby. And the woman who, li who lay next to her also had a baby. And she took the woman's live baby, placed it next to her, took her dead baby, and placed it next to the other woman. The woman who woke up in the morning to find the dead child was startled and grief-stricken. But as she looked, she realized it wasn't her child. It was the child of the other woman. And she went to Solomon, the judge, the king at the time, all the same, and said, I went to sleep, and this woman replaced my baby. My baby's the one who's alive. And it's, you know, like a TV drama. People are standing around in the court wondering, what's Solomon going to do? And Solomon just looks, and he says to the executioner, bring me a sword. Executioner? Sword? Bring me a sword. He brings him a sword, and he holds the sword, and he says, we'll just cut the baby in half, and you can have one part, and he can, she can have the other. And as soon as he uttered the words, the woman whose child it really was cried out and said, no, whatever you do, don't do that. Just let her have the baby instead if I can't have it. Solomon said, there's the mother. Give the baby to her. An interesting graphic, strange description of wisdom. Maybe not how you would have proceeded, but 
Certainly a very interesting adaptation to justice. Solomon is known not only in the kingdom for many stories like that, but he's known beyond the kingdom for stories like this and many more. So much so that his, his fame had spread to all kinds of nations. And on one occasion, a person named the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon's country in Israel just to observe the grandeur of his kingdom. She noted all the grandeur of his kingdom, brought him many, many elaborate gifts, but she also sat in his presence and questioned him, one question after another about life, everything she could think of, basically interrogating him to find out what kind of wisdom resided in this man. And he answered her one after another after another, and at the end she said, I'm amazed. She said, not even the half of your wisdom or the half of the grandeur of your kingdom was told to me. This is amazing. Your servants must be delighted, overwhelmingly happy to serve in your palace. You're a wonderful king. So he's known in the kingdom for wisdom. He's known broadly for wisdom. Wisdom is a part of his legacy. There's no doubt about it. And it ought to be because that's what he asked for. But he's also known for wealth. Unbelievable opulence. Incredible wealth. It's said in the text um, before this section that Solomon's reign created a new reality. And here's the new reality. The author says silver was as plentiful or as measured as ordinary stones were. In other words, silver, so high an honor among precious metals, was so abundant with all the people and all the surrounding places in Israel that it was like an Indiana Geo plucked from a pond. Beautiful, but ordinary. Silver everywhere. And gold was plentiful. It's a description by this chronicler of Solomon's reign that there was opulence in his kingdom. This was a successful, blessed, dramatic kingdom. Another way the writer described it, he said, under Solomon's reign, everyone lived at peace under their own fig tree and vine. Now, that's an image. It's an image of plenty. It's an image that no one has anything that they long for and cannot have. They have all they need. Fig tree, vine, peace, it's all right there in front of them. So it wasn't just Solomon who lived in luxury, but all the people lived in prosperity, the chronicler says. But that's not all of it. This wealth of Solomon was remarkable because at that time there were not huge nation states, or at least Israel hadn't experienced it themselves being a nation state of gigantic proportions now they were they were huge and they were known internationally as a matter of fact they had a form of international trade that rivals in the ancient world what we consider to be monumental gigantic superpower international trade by let's say the united states they had ships that sailed from the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Israel to all parts of the known world, and they would come back with unbelievable amounts of silver and gold and all kinds of jewels. And in addition to that, they would bring back exotic animals. So Solomon could place them in certain places, I would assume like a zoo, and study them. 
Plants, too. Exotic plants from tropical places were brought to Solomon so he could examine them. There was science and, can we use the word, technology going on under Solomon's reign. It was amazing. So he's known for wisdom. He's known for wealth in the nation. He's also known for power. He was a powerful man. His kingdom, well, no one dared come up against Solomon and his kingdom. The strength of his army was overwhelming. It said that he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Now, maybe that's not a lot of numbers for us, but you might think of it this way. Tanks and fighter jets. He had more than everybody else. There were a lot of horses. There was all kinds of cattle. There were donkeys. But he had war horses more than anybody did and chariots more than anybody did. He could overrun anyone and no one threatened him. Not only that, he had an elaborate bureaucracy. If you take a look at chapter 4 in this book, 1 Kings, you'll find a description of all the officers that were a part of his kingdom. Governors and officers and tax collectors and bureaucrats of all sorts. It shows you that the organization of government was incredibly elaborate. Now, why do I say that? Not just to say it was elaborate, but to say it was a first of its kind. What I mean by that is only two generations earlier, well, the people of Israel were hillbillies. Really. They lived in the hills. They had no king. And when Saul became king, there was not this opulence. There was not this wealth. There was not this bureaucracy to run the government. But the government has become so large and so complicated that he has a large group of people to help him run it. Saul, in effect, ran the country from his house. So power is incredible. Wealth is incredible and wisdom is amazing. But you know there's a fourth part of his legacy that he leaves? The temple. He built it. Nobody else did. David, his father, wanted to build the temple, and God said, no, that's not for you to do. I'm going to let Solomon, your son, build it. He built the temple. And he used resources from all over the place to do it. Cedars that were really not a part of his indigenous area brought from the mountains down to the valley to build this temple. The opulence of the temple was unbelievable. So much of it was overlaid by gold, pure gold. Other parts were pure wood, like cedar. The stones that were milled to build this temple, they said were milled with such accuracy that they were laid stone upon stone upon stone without a crevice anywhere. No mortar needed. Not only that, a description of the building of the temple says you were, there was not a sound of a hammer in the building of the temple. It was so neatly fitted together. Everything was perfect. It was unbelievable. Solomon took seven years to build the temple of God. And by the way, there's some way in which building the temple of God said something about him and his relationship to God. First of all, just like all the other nations around them, when nations built temples, they were glorifying the God for all the things the gods had done for them. 
They didn't see themselves as individually successful when they conquered another nation. They gave credit to their gods and then they built a temple in their honor. Solomon is building this temple and he's saying all the glory goes to God. Look at this temple. But he built the temple and he knew it. It was part of his legacy. This temple was um, a declaration of the greatness of God. It took him seven years to build. And then following that, he built his own palace. And how long it took him to build his palace? Thirteen years. The person who's the author of 1 Kings, he doesn't tell us why he even said that. He doesn't give us a footnote. He doesn't say, look, Solomon was more interested in self than he was in God. He just leaves it for us to, to, to contemplate. Seven years for the temple, 13 for my house. Maybe it meant there was more time and resources put into the temple and they could complete it more quickly. Or maybe it meant Solomon thought more of himself than he did of God. But the temple was a legacy, an incredible legacy for the people of Israel. Now, in light of all of that, okay, that background, background story concerning the legacy, the largeness, the grandness of Solomon's kingdom, I want to insert the story that Rob just read a moment ago, which is God appearing, or shall we say reappearing to Solomon. At the beginning, he appeared to him in a dream, and he said, what do you want? Solomon said, wisdom. Now he appears to him a second time, and he says, I want to tell you something. You've completed the temple. I think it's wonderful. I love this temple. Here's what I want to say, Solomon. My heart and my eyes will always be on this temple because this is a symbol of what the people of God ought to be about, worship. However, Solomon, though my eyes and my heart will eternally be upon this temple, namely upon worship, if you walk in my ways, in righteousness and uprightness, I'll bless you and your family. And I won't tear the kingdom away from your family like I did from Saul. But you must follow me completely. And if you do not follow me, and your sons refuse to follow me, I'll tell you what will happen. This kingdom will fall apart. The temple that I love, where my heart is set, will be destroyed. And people will say when they walk by, what on earth happened? Why did God allow this to happen? And then the answer will come back quickly because they forsook their God. They walked away from him, and this is the destruction that God brought, even on his own house. That's my message to you, Solomon. Now that's pretty chilling right? It's also a grand promise. They're laid side by side. We know the rest of the story. Very quickly after Solomon's death, this kingdom is split right in half from north to south. They even fight among each other across lines. They kill one another, brothers on brother. And then eventually the whole kingdom is exported into exile, into Babylon. It all comes true because, as God said, I'll do it if you don't follow me. 
That is also Solomon's legacy. What is the legacy he left behind? Well, what he left behind was a memory of power and wealth. But it was just a memory. It was like a vapor. It was there and then gone. The power and wealth just evaporated. But in the memory, it's the legacy of Solomon, a high point in the kingdom of Israel. That's the physical legacy, which is gone, that he left behind. But he left another legacy, a more enduring legacy, the temple, even though the temple was destroyed, because at the heart of what God says about the temple is worship. It's not about the stones. It's not about the grandeur of the palace of God. It's about the heart of worship. We've known that from the beginning, all the way back to Moses and even before. When God speaks about the temple, he constructs the temple, gives them elaborate details on it for a particular reason, to reflect his image and to talk about, in human terms, eternal worship at God's throne. Take a look at the book of Hebrews, if you haven't ever done it. Take a look at the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, it plays it out. It says the temple, the tabernacle, all those things were shadows. They were signs of a heavenly reality. And the heavenly reality is worship of God completely with all our hearts. So the temple is a legacy of Solomon. Though in decay, though crushed by oppressors, still the temple itself, the idea, even the construction is a legacy. But there's a third legacy that Solomon left. And... Um, Let's play teacher classroom thing here, will you, with me? When you think of three books in the Bible that you associate with Solomon, what are they? Just someone shout out one. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, there they are. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that's a legacy of Solomon. Solomon, in effect, didn't just leave buildings, didn't just leave this and that, didn't just leave stories about his wisdom. He wrote down stories about wisdom. He gave us the Proverbs. He gave us the Song of Songs. And he gave us Ecclesiastes, a terribly sad, wise account of an old man. In effect, his legacy in Ecclesiastes is this. I've tried it all. I had everything that this world has to offer. It was at my fingertips. And I ran after this thing and then that thing and then that thing and I pursued this with all my might and every time it came up empty. It was vacuous. It didn't satisfy. And at the end of it all, what I want to tell you, my son, is this. There's only one thing in the world you ought to be concerned with. To fear God, to follow His commandments, and to love Him. That's what you ought to do with your life. That's a profound legacy, but a sad one. It's like an old man calling his children into his room before he dies and saying, my life was a mess. I don't want you to do anything I did. What I want you to do is do what I say. Here's how I want you to live. The, a residue of wisdom in a dying old man. 
That's part of Solomon's legacy. A sad but noble legacy. But there's a final thing that's a part of Solomon's legacy, and it's, it's been summarized in a narrative with um, Ecclesiastes, but more specifically, this particular book summarizes it with one phrase. They said the legacy of Solomon is that he had many wives, and they turned his heart away from God. Now, we know he didn't love 700 women. That's a sick dude, if you could do that. Most of them were political marriages. We get that. Some of them he probably loved. The point was all those political marriages from all those places built up his kingdom brick by brick by brick. And the bricks that built his kingdom were the residual effect of destruction in his kingdom. From the inside out, when his heart was turned towards their gods that they never left, his kingdom began to crumble. He built palaces for these wives. He built places of worship in the high hills so they could worship their gods. He defaulted to polygamy the worship of many gods and the text says even though his heart was inclined towards God it went in many ways that too is the legacy of Solomon I, I want to say a word about legacy before I conclude that's not really about Solomon but it's about us uh, the first word is this I said it already legacies are not just for kings and presidents everybody is going to have a legacy Probably most of you have not been to as many funerals as I have. It's part of my job. But I've never been to one that has not demonstrated some kind of legacy. Some of them were unspeakably sad. But still, there was a story. There was a life. There was a legacy. It's inevitable. You can't avoid it. You'll have a legacy. Second thing, no one's legacy is perfect, okay? Let's just reach out and embrace that like it's life. Nobody's legacy is perfect. Yours won't be, your father's wasn't, my father's wasn't. Nobody's legacy is perfect because we know full well that we can do all the things we believe to be right and it's not enough. Our legacy will never be perfect. As a matter of fact, we could be preoccupied with even the good things in our legacy to this point that our preoccupation is about legacy rather than about God. It's an ironic thing that if you are preoccupied with your legacy, you become incredibly self-centered because really it's all about you and your story. So even though legacy is amazingly important, the suggestion is don't focus on legacy. Focus on God. I, I love C.S. Lewis. Everybody does, right? He's like the Teflon theologian. Nothing sticks to the guy. 
point is this. Uh, when he talked about uh, literature, because he was a literature professor primarily, he said something that I think is applicable here. Um, though he was, again, talking about literature and art. Listen to these words. He says, even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas, if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without even noticing it. Isn't that true? Think of the legendary originality of authors. It's already been said. Somebody said it before they did. Some fable already encapsulated what is absolutely central to their story. But the way they told it, because they were passionate about that truth, became original, Liv says. Not because they were seeking originality, but because they were passionate about what they told. I think there's a parallel here. We could seek to establish a legacy and completely mess the boat, or to use the old metaphor, get the cart before the horse. But if we seek the truth, if we seek to emulate God to the world, if we seek to be image bearers of God to the world, if we seek God, or in the words of Jesus, seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, then the legacy endures. And it's not about us. It's about God. It's a finger pointing away from us towards the only thing that's eternal. So it's not just kings and presidents who leave legacies. You will. And no one leaves a perfect legacy, and the way to leave one is not to be preoccupied with a legacy, but be preoccupied with the truth, namely preoccupied with God. Third thing I want to say about legacy is there is such a thing called the legacy of the cross, you know. The legacy of the cross. At the risk of being hideously oversimplistic, the legacy of the cross is grace and redemption. God gives you the grace you do not deserve, and he redeems you one day at a time. So I'm going to infuse your life with grace. And part of that grace is every day of your life, I'm going to continue to redeem you. I'm going to continue to shape you into my image. Stay with me, will you, Bob? Don't jump over and hit the waters. Stay with me. I want to redeem you. I want to make you like me. You know, um, Everybody has a legacy, and everybody can start a new one. And it's everybody's opportunity to pursue the legacy of the cross, grace and redemption. I, I have two questions uh, before I conclude that I want to ask, and the first one is this. What is keeping you from following God in a completely wholehearted way? What is it? This is you, and it's for you to answer. I provide no answers or suggestions. But I would imagine that if you think 
you pray and you reflect, you'll find at least one thing that's an impediment to you pursuing God wholeheartedly. What is it? Second question. This one, you know, I write these questions before I give them to you, obviously, and so they're my questions first. And this one put a chill down through my whole body. Um, not because it's so good, but because it just scared the life out of me. It, it's this. If your life were to be completely observed, inside and out, thoughts and actions, by another, what would that other say is most important to you? You know, there is somebody like that, right? It's God. But I ask you to bring in a fictitious character for a moment who goes with you everywhere you go and can hear your thoughts. What would they say is most important to Bob? If, if you think about that, it will have a tendency, if your heart's in the right place, to reshape your legacy. I think if you think about it long enough, you'll be inclined to say, there is an impediment to my wholehearted desert, uh, allegiance to God. And there is one thing that overly defines my reality in a way that it should not. What is it? Those are impediments to the legacy that you wish for as a child of God. I... Uh, told a story about my dad at the beginning and so give me a minute to tell another one not about him but about somebody else who's important to me and you might hear it as braggadocious but I'll take the criticism this weekend we had the uh, privilege of spending some time with my son down in Kentucky who's actually from Los Angeles uh, he was there not to see us. Uh, he was there to see a girl. Um, and the girl is a very important girl to him. He's been dating for years, and uh, they took a little bit of a hiatus when he went to Los Angeles so he could figure out what the new direction for his life was, and then they discovered they couldn't live without each other. So they are planning to be married. Um, and as good fortune would have it, they're going to be married right here at ECC. Um, and I asked him in the car the other day, you know, but I haven't asked you this question, is do you, like, should, do you want me to marry you? And he said, well, of course, you big dummy. I've always wanted you to marry me. <laughs> I said, well, you never really asked, so I just had to know. Well, uh, the story really is this. He um, told me in the car how he was going to, you know, propose to her. They always have some sort of special thing. I, I say that because I wasn't very special when I made my proposal, and it's a joke around our house. Um, but his is special, and he told me how he was going to do it, and I won't tell you the details of that, but he said, you know, Dad, the reason I'm doing it now is for a very specific reason, because now was this morning, and it happened 
much earlier this morning, and man, I hope she said yes, or this story's going to be bad when he listens. <laughs> he said, I'm going to ask her, right? And then he said, I'm going to tell her, the reason I ask you now, Janelle, was so the very next activity that precedes, that not precedes, it comes after, the next activity that comes after our formal engagement will be worship. Because he was going to propose to her, and then they were going to go to church. And I thought, that's my boy. <laughs> like, I mean, nothing could have warmed my heart more, right? And I think if my dad could have been there, it would have warmed his heart. I don't know how it works. Maybe he knows. Dad's legacy is being carried on by David. I want to say one more thing about that. Legacies are not necessarily guaranteed to produce the kind of results you want. Right? Kids are individuals. The proverb that says raise up a child in the way he ought to go and he won't depart from it is not a proof that if you do all the right things, your child absolutely will follow Christ because he's an individual. It's a description of reality that if you train up your child this way, it's far more likely that he will search after and find God because you left him that legacy. So I don't want any of us going away thinking to ourselves that if we just get it right, it'll all be fixed. It won't. But we have the opportunity to pursue God. And if you think about your legacy, and it hasn't been a great one that's been delivered to you, God gives you the opportunity to create one. And if you think about your legacy right now, the one that's been delivered to you, whether it was good or bad, and the legacy you have already started, and it doesn't seem to be too good, God gives you an opportunity right now to recreate one. A legacy for us begins today. What's it going to be? My recommendation is that you walk out of here with one thing in mind to set a new legacy for your life. What is it? That's up to you and to God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you give us uh, your word. We thank you for that Sunday after Sunday. I, I can't imagine, Lord, um, trying to understand life at a deep level and pontificate about life experiences and create wisdom out of stuff without your word. Uh, but your word, Lord, which is divinely inspired and just so eternally powerful, challenges us to re-examine our lives and calls us to new directions. Well, not so new because we knew them, but new because we're not there now. We pray, Lord, that as we think about uh, our life and following you, uh, we will seize the opportunity to create a legacy, not by pursuing a legacy, but by pursuing you. And pulling away the idols that keep us from full-hearted devotion to you uh, so that at the end of our days uh, we can look back 
and thank you for the opportunity of following you and the heritage that we have to pass on to those who are left behind. We thank you for this, Lord, in the name of Christ, our risen Lord, the one who gave us a legacy to follow. In your name we pray. Amen.